0: Me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is a famous chapter. Much of it gives us the events that took place when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, we've been looking at this topic of devotional disciplines, habits of righteousness for a few weeks, and I think that we will eventually pick up those topics again and review and then discuss some new topics. But I want to step away from these devotional disciplines for a few weeks and and, and lay some foundational work that I, I lay from time to time because it's so important to remember it's not our power, but it's God's power. It's not our power, but it's God's power. Now, we want to be disciplined. We want to live lives that are disciplined. We want to live lives that please the Lord. We want to keep his commandments because we love him. I don't don't dispute any of that, but it's still God's power and not my power and not your power. And if we think it's our power, if we think it's in us, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to fail and we're going to say this doesn't work. And it doesn't work in your power doesn't work in my power. Sometimes people come to me as if I have some magic elixir that I can give them. You know, it's not working, Pastor. What do I do? Here, drink this. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, You know, say so many prayers or go, go to this seminar. No, ultimately, the power is of God. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay jars, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these topics and specifically trying to focus on two topics. One is justification. Justification is a big theological term that basically means salvation, that God rescues you from the penalty and from the power of sin. And second, sanctification, where God gives us that overcoming victory to live that victorious Christian life. Not that our problems go away. There there is no Christian life in which the problems go away. There's a Christian life in which the problems come and we see God's victory in them. And so that's the uh, overall topics that we'll be dealing with over the next few weeks. I'm not really sure. This is one of those messages I've got so much on my heart that I'm not sure exactly what's going to be said this morning. Not that I don't know what I'm going to say. The problem is I have too much I want to say. So I'm going to have to restrict it. So you pray that the Lord will give me wisdom to say what he wants me to say. And then if there's extra pieces, maybe we'll come back to this chapter next week and, and maybe we won't. What happened was I was going through my week. I had a plan to teach on the next devotional discipline, which, by the way, was friendships, friendships. And so I was getting ready for this message and actually had a large part of it done. And then a fella called me and he was sharing his heart with me. And I, I realized uh, that what he was saying was so true that we can attempt the Christian life in our own strength and fail. Or we can live the Christian life by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit and succeed. And I thought, you know, that's an excellent, excellent topic. I'm going to get to that next month. And then I was reading a book. And the book said, you know, the American dream is for us to do and to be recognized for us doing. Right. That is the American dream, whether you work a job at a um, sanitation plant. Right. It's nice when people say, hey, look, you did a great job. Look what you did. Uh, if you work out at school, look at your class. Your students are so well behaved. They know so much. They test so well. And we like to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. look at me. And, you know, pastors, we fall into that trap. We start to think that, boy, if I just am the best pastor I can be, people will like me and people will come. They'll even come on time. Hamburger. Yeah, I'm talking to you. (laughs) They'll even come on time. They'll like me and my church will grow. That's not it. That's not it. Because then if your church grows, if a pastor's church grows because of who the pastor is, who gets the glory for that? Now, really, what is our purpose in life? We want God to be glorified, not us. So I thought, you know, that's a great topic. I'm going to preach on that next week. And then God brought along a third No, 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 no. This is not, you're not going through. How many times will I have to talk to you? Sort of like Balaam and his donkey, right? So I said, okay, I'll preach on that this week. By the way, God's always right. When the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, when he's making clear to you from, from his word, not from what your desires are, not from the circumstances that are around you, but making clear from his word, what he wants you to do. You can trust that God is right. And that's what you need to do. God's always right. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, acknowledge God, and He will direct thy paths. So that's where this message comes from. We are in John chapter 11. Let me read to you the first five verses of John 11. And like I said, we're going to go piece by piece through this, these events that happen in Mary and Martha and Lazarus' life and Jesus, how He response to them. And there's a lot of lessons here, so we'll see how far we get. John chapter 11, verse 1, let me read this to you. Now a certain man was sick. We've had a lot of sickness this winter. Have you noticed that? Just some very serious illness, some not so serious, but a lot of sickness. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So these, these people, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, were very dear to Jesus. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Notice that, for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Mary, excuse me, loved Martha and her sister. That would have been Mary and Lazarus. Father, as we come to this passage, we want to be careful not to put, I I want to be careful not to put my thoughts into it or lead people into my way of thinking. Father, we want to meditate on this passage and draw from it the truths that you have put there. And then the hard part, Father, is to take those truths and apply them to our lives. Some folks are facing sickness right now and others are not. And so give us wisdom and how we apply them and how we pray and and motivate us to come to you with our illnesses and motivate us to come to you correctly and to pray according to your will and pray for your glory. Father, as we go through this passage, there's going to be other topics, and and I, I just ask for you to expound each one to me and to us. We pray again that your Holy Spirit would meet with us. We claim your promise where two or three are gathered in your name. There you are in the midst of them. So we pray, Father. For your presence. We pray for your invigorating, uh, th- th- that your word, it is quick, it is alive. And we pray that it would invigorate and animate us to do what you've called us to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first five verses. Um, here we have a man, he's sick. Jesus loves him. Jesus loves Mary and Martha. And so his sisters, when, he find, when they find out that Lazarus is sick, they send to Jesus. Now, I don't know what kind of illness this was. Sometimes people grow very sick very quickly. and Or maybe it was that Lazarus had been sick for some time, but he took a turn for the worse. Whatever it was, Mary and Martha said, listen, if, if Jesus doesn't come and heal Lazarus, he's going to die. So they send for Jesus. And when Jesus hears about this, he doesn't do anything. Look at verse six with me. It says, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place. Where he was. Now, if you don't know the story, I'll just jump ahead and tell you what happens. Lazarus dies. Amen. Nothing. I don't want people to die. It's a terrible thing. That's one of the things that happened this week. We we celebrated a uh, life well lived. Len Granger passed away about three weeks ago, and we had his a committal service. So it was a viewing for him. Death is so hard, isn't it? I don't like death. It's never pleasant. So when people are sick, when people, have you ever noticed when people are sick, we always pray for them to be healed. Now, I'm not against praying for people to be healed because God does heal people and God heals people in miraculous ways. We have people sitting among us this morning that have medically speaking, miracle cures. They should not be here today, but God reached down and cured them and God does. Why is it though, that whenever someone is sick, we automatically want to pray for their healing. Well, I'll tell you why that is, because I've been sick and nobody likes to be sick. You don't like to be sick. I don't like to be sick. So if you say, hey, so so is sick, boy, my first thought is I need to pray for their healing. Let's face the truth, though. God doesn't always heal people. Now, he doesn't always, their illness doesn't always end in immediate death. Sometimes people are sick for a long, long time we don't like being sick. We don't like being sick because it's not comfortable. And we don't like being sick because it prevents us from doing what we want to do. But when God does not heal, you can be assured. If you're a Christian and God, and you're praying about this and God is not healing you, you can be assured that God will get more glory through your illness than he would through your health. Again, see that verse right there, verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. And you say, well, he dies. Yes, he he does. But you know the story. Jesus is going to bring him back out of the tomb. We'll get get there. I don't want to get too far ahead. But you can be assured that if God doesn't heal you, or God doesn't heal one of your loved ones, and you're praying and you're asking God for his will in that person's life, you can be assured that there's a reason that person is going through illness. There's a reason that God is not healing them and that God will get more glory from not healing them than he would have gotten from just healing them. Now that's hard for us because we don't like to be sick, and we don't like to be around people who are sick. That's the first thing I want to talk about. Second thing I want to talk about from this chapter, discipleship takes courage. Look at verse 7 with me. Then after that, after two days, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, that's Jesus' disciples, say unto Jesus, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. Just in chapter 10, Jesus says something that causes the people to pick up rocks, and they're going to kill him by throwing rocks at him. So Jesus, because it's not his time yet to die, he leaves, he goes over to an area on the far side of Jordan. He's there with his disciples. Now he hears Lazarus is sick. He waits two days. Then he says to his disciples, hey, let's go back. And you know what his disciples say? Why? Those people are out to kill you. You could die. Discipleship takes courage. If you want to walk by Jesus' side, It takes courage. I know it feels uncomfortable. It feels uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable to be Christians. There was a time, most of you remember this time, when you could hold up a Bible and say, the Bible says, and most people would nod their heads as if they agreed with you. Even if in their hearts they didn't agree with you, there was an honor and respect for God's word that was just common to the United States. Now, if you say God's word says, they they may laugh. We don't listen to that. We're past that. And that feels uncomfortable. So it takes more courage to be a Christian. But let me remind you it's always taken courage to be a disciple. It was sort of an abnormality for uh, the United States to have such a Christian influence that most people, even unsaved people, honored God's word and believed that there was a God. So don't be surprised. When people make fun of you, don't be surprised when people persecute you. It takes courage to be a Christian. It takes courage to walk by Jesus' side. But let me remind you that light always shines the farthest in the dark. And the darker our nation becomes, the more important it is to have Christians who are committed, who are courageous disciples, who stand for truth regardless of the consequences. Some of you remember about two years ago, they they told us we were going to, 15 days to flatten the curve. It was a lot longer than 15 days. And at some point, there was a pastor here in California. He said, listen, we're just, we're just going to meet. So he started to meet, um, met with his people, gathering his people. The sheriff said, hey, you can't meet. The, man said, the pastor said, listen, we're going to meet. The sheriff says, I'm going to have to arrest you if you meet. He says, okay, that's fine. Just make sure you don't arrest me during the church service. So sure enough, after the church service, the uh, sheriff's vehicle drives up, arrest the pastor. Takes him into court. You know what I appreciated about the pastor? He didn't need to fight the government. Didn't need to tell his people, well, let's all get guns. We're going to barricade ourselves in the church. Now, he realized that God wanted his people to meet, so they're going to meet. And he realized that he was going to be responsible to the local government, and that was the sheriff, and they were going to arrest him. You know, the judge threw that case out. You say, well, we didn't hear about that. Yeah, yeah, I know you didn't hear about that. The pastor specifically asked that we not give too many details about that because he saw God's hand in it. It's going to take courage and it's going to take commitment to be a disciple for Jesus Christ. But it's always taking courage and it's always taking commitment. We've just forgotten that. Discipleship takes courage. Let me me move on to the next one, control. How many of you would like to be in control of things? Yeah, don't even need to raise your hand. We all like to be in control of things. you know what I see in this chapter? Martha and Mary are both upset that Jesus does not come when they call him. Let's see if we can find that here. Um, verse 21. John eleven twenty-one. 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And then verse 32, then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Control. We don't, we, we like to think we're in control and we don't like it when we feel like we are not in control. There's a whole lot of ways that is seen. That's why we like it when, when we're ill and we can go to the doctor and the doctor says, here's your diagnosis, here's your illness, and here's the treatment, maybe surgery or maybe medication, and, and then your problem goes away. That's what we like because we're in control. But what about when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hmm, and you say, what does hmm mean? Hmm. <laughs> Let's send you for more tests. Well, when, 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 when will we get the results back? Later. My office will call you. Nobody likes to, be, yeah, and you go, hmm. No, <laughs> nobody likes to be in that spot. We like to be in control. What about your kids? You know what's, what's, you think that raising children is hardest when they're little. But when they're little, you're in control. Wait till they get to be adults. And now all of a sudden you're out of control. You're not in control anymore. And you say to your adult son or your adult daughter, hey, that's, that's not very wise. And they just walk away. Then they come back and say, you know, that wasn't very wise. Yeah, I know, I told you. You're not in control anymore. You know what God wants us to understand? We were never in control in the first place. We like to think we're in control. We looked two weeks ago at 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God's always in control, and he allows the circumstances in our lives to show us that we are not in control, and rather than fight those circumstances, we need to embrace the truth that God is still in control. In this instance, Martha wanted to be in control of her circumstances, and when her brother got sick, and she realized, okay, I'm not in control she said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask Jesus to come and help. So she sent for Jesus. Mary's thinking the same thing. You know, he's getting worse. Let's send for Jesus. They send for Jesus. Lazarus is in his bed. He's getting sicker and sicker. And he thinks, you know, if, if Jesus comes, he'll heal me. But then they send for Jesus and Jesus doesn't make it in time. And that's why both Martha and Mary come to Jesus. And they say, if you, if you would have just been here. Our brother would not have died. Now, it doesn't say what Lazarus said because Lazarus is dead. But I'm guessing if we could have asked Lazarus, what do you think? He'd say, You know, if Jesus would have just made it in time, I wouldn't have had to die. The truth is, we're all limited. Some of us are more limited than others, but all of us are limited. We're all limited in what we know. You might know more than me, but you don't know everything. We're all limited in our health. You might be healthier than me, but we're all limited. We're limited in our finances. Now, if anyone in here says, Pastor, I've got so much and to spare. Listen, we've got a building project over here. (laughs) And if you've got a whole bunch of money, we'll take some of it. But the truth is we're limited in our finances. And I look at my my bank statements and I look at, now you go online, you know, you can look at how much is in your account. And I look at the different things that I was not expecting to happen that were not in the budget because they're not supposed to happen. And I think, how is this going to meet that? And I'm not in control. We only have limited power to change our circumstances. We only have limited influence. And that can either frustrate us because we're not in control. Or we can cast all our care upon Jesus because he cares for us. And the hardest time for me, speaking personally, the hardest time to be out of control is when you have worked and labored, and sacrificed, and agonized to accomplish a task. And just as you see that end goal of that task, it's suddenly ripped away. Maybe all of a sudden your health fails, and you can't complete the task because you're too ill. Or all of a sudden the money that you thought was going to be there is gone, and you can't complete the task because there's not enough money. Or a person you're working with, and, and, and you're mentoring, and you're seeing them make progress suddenly just does A 180 and goes the wrong way and and you, what is going on? You are never in control. God was always in control. And we can cast our care upon him because he cares for us. And God does this. He takes things out of our control because, again, the American dream is built on what I can do and me being recognized for it. And if I can do it, and people say, oh, look at him. He's, oh, pastor, woohoo, did a good job. Then I get the glory. And it's not about me getting the glory. It's not about you getting the glory. It's not about our church getting the glory. Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give praise. It's God getting the glory. So he takes things out of our control. So it's not about me. It's not about what I can do. Let's get to the the heart of our message here. Um, there's, there's an all sufficiency that our savior has that we will never have. And once we get past the control issues and once we say, okay, God, you're right. I I can't control this. I'm going to cast my care upon you because I know you care for me. Then we can get to this part where we see the all sufficiency of the savior. Otherwise we're always trying to, to get things back into our control. And then when things go well, what do we say? Oh, look, I, I really had to struggle. Yeah, I really had to work hard, but look what I did. And we get the glory. So let's get to the all-sufficiency of the Savior. Let's pick it up in verse 39. Uh, John eleven thirty nine. 39. Then Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Now, in order to understand the significance of this statement and, and the, Mary's, Martha's response, uh, look back at verse 22 with me. John eleven twenty two. In 21, Martha has said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother had not died. Verse 22, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Martha says, I know whatever you ask, I know whatever you ask, God the Father is going to give you what you ask for. And so Jesus comes to the tomb, and and we've skipped a large section. There was a lot of things I want to say, but let's get here. Jesus comes to the tomb and he says, okay, it's time to move the stone away. Now, if Martha believes what she said back in verse 22, if she really believes whatever Jesus asked God the Father for, God the Father is going to give it to her, what is she going to do? She's going to move that stone away so they can get on with the business of what Jesus is going to do. Go back to verse 39. Jesus said, take you away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks. He's been dead four days. We can't move the stone away. What has God just done there? He said, let's test Martha's faith. Now, by the way, when God tests your faith, when God tests my faith, let me ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. But when God tests my faith, when God tests your faith, does God already know how much faith I have? Oh, yeah. He knows everything. So why does he do it? Because he wants to point out to me how much faith I have. Here in this verse, Jesus already knows what Martha is going to say before he even says, roll the stone away. But he still asks her to roll the stone away because he wants her to see that she wasn't being sincere when she said, I believe. Whatever you ask for, God will give it to you. Because Jesus says, well, I'm going to ask for your brother to be brought back to life. No, 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 You can't do that. Do you ever do that to God? Lord, I believe, I believe, I believe. Then he takes circumstances away and he, and he leaves just this open pit in front of you, and and he says, take a step, and you say, no, 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 no. No, no! I'm not going to do that. Because we really don't believe that God is all sufficient. We don't really believe that he knows what he's doing. We want to say that with our lips. We we, we really do, and I do it myself. I say, God, whatever you ask me to do, and he says, okay, I want you to do this. Well, not not that. I didn't mean that, (laughs) little side note. So here it is. Here's the truth. Yeah, Lazarus is dead. (laughs) Lazarus is dead. He's not in a coma. He's not in a swoon. He's dead. And dead people don't come back to life. In all of my experience, I've never seen a dead person come back to life. I did read about a seminary student. As I was studying for this passage, read about a seminary student whose professor took his class of seminary students to the local cemetery. And he said, pick out any corpse you want, and I want you to call them by name and ask them to come back to life. And not one of those students was able to do that. Now, why can Jesus do that and not you and me? Because Jesus is God. Don't miss that. Jesus is God. And God can do anything. But the reality is Lazarus is dead. Now, from, La- that's, from God's side, anything's possible. But from Lazarus' side, when Lazarus is dead, what's possible? The answer is nothing. Nobody would have said to Lazarus' corpse, you really got to try harder. You, you can do this. You just try harder. Right? Nobody's going to say, you know, Lazarus, you just don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. You remember in John chapter, not John, Acts chapter 12, when the people are praying for Peter to be released and God releases Peter. Do you remember how much faith they had? I'll tell you how much faith they had in John- in uh, Acts chapter 12. They were praying, God, release Peter from prison. He's going to die tomorrow if you don't let him out. And then the door, there's a knock at the door and the servant, the, the little girl Rhoda, She runs to the door and uh, she says, who is it? And Peter says, it's me. It's Peter. And Rhoda is so excited. She runs back to the praying group that's praying for Peter to be released, and she says, "Peter is at the door." And they said, "No, no, no. It's not Peter." <laughs> did, did they have faith? No, no. If they would have had faith, they would have went to the door. Despite their lack of faith, God answered their prayers. Here's my point: It's not your faith that accomplishes anything. Lazarus is dead. The answer is Lazarus have more faith. That is not the answer. He's dead. There is no hope outside of God intervening. But then Jesus intervenes. Look with me at verse 43. He cried, middle of the verse, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus come forth and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin. Here's Lazarus. He's dead. But when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, all of a sudden he has life and he can get up and he can walk. Now, that's the physical reality. That's what we see in this passage. This is parallel to the spiritual reality that all of us begin life spiritually dead. You remember, I read to you Ephesians 2, 1, and ye who were dead in trespasses and sins, you are dead. You are dead. There was nothing you could do. It wasn't, okay, you need to have more faith. It wasn't, yeah, you got to try harder to be a Christian. You were dead. Then what did God do? He intervened. We, We read verse four together. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. God intervened in your life. So then we think, okay, good. God intervened. I'm alive. Now I have to do it. No, you don't have to do it. It's still God's power flowing through you that has to do it. It's still God's, the excellency of the power is still God's in in our earthen vessel. In our church, Elmira Baptist Church, we need to recognize that we are completely, completely dependent upon God. I don't want to get away from this. There's a lot of good moral teaching in the Bible and and we ought to keep God's commandments because we love him, but we can only do it through the power of God's grace. There's a lot of good moral principles in here and and I'm going to hold you accountable and I hope you will hold me accountable to to live up to these moral principles that God has in in his word. But we can't do it in our own power. I don't want us to miss that. This is the big difference between man's religion and the Bible. Do man's religions have good moral principles? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, one of the big moral principles in Buddhism, we were 11 years in Mongolia, and many of the people there are Buddhists. And if you ask a Buddhist, is drunkenness wrong? Yeah, drunkenness is wrong. Then why are there so many drunk people in Mongolia? It's not that they don't see the moral principle. They know the moral principle. It's that they can't help themselves. Because man is dead apart from God, spiritually speaking. He's dead. You can know all the right principles and still be dead spiritually. Uh, I've got friends, and you probably do too here in the United States, friends that are Mormons. Are Mormons moral people? Boy, they're moral. Boy, sometimes they put us to shame because they have some good principles in their life. Will their good principles get them to heaven? No, never. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not you are the way. You're, not the Bible is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We're dead. Spiritually speaking, we're dead until God intervenes. And then after his intervention and we're now saved, we're his children. We still need his grace and his Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we have no power to overcome sin on our own. We have no power to preach the gospel, to effectively introduce our neighbors to Jesus Christ outside of of God's power. And so we we call on what we ought to do is we ought to call on Jesus to intervene. Do you have a a friend or a neighbor or a, a coworker, a family member who needs to be saved? Yes, you need to know the gospel and you need to be ready to give it to them. But they need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They need God to unleash his power because you don't have the power to save them. Do you have a child that's gone astray? They're just making some really, really bad. They're adult children making some bad decisions and, and you grieve and your heart's broken Yes, give them good advice. Yes, love them. Yes, keep pointing them to the the principles that are in Scripture, but ultimately they need God's power to change their life. You're going to have to pray. How much do you pray for that child? I say child, adult. How much do you pray? I've been preaching this series on on devotional disciplines, and I stand by these disciplines. There are things that we ought to be doing as Christians. Prayer. Prayer. Meditation, giving, gratitude, victorious Christian living, gospel sowing, growing and thriving as a member of a church. those are right things. But the power behind all of those is God's grace. It's God's grace. These are not my thoughts, but I agree with them, so but I just want you to understand they're not my thoughts here. The typical path for an American church. Right, the typical path for an American church is you get a really, uh, a really good pastor. I mean, he's really good at preaching, or he's really good at people, he's really good at something, and you get a really good pastor. And because people like the pastor, they start to come to the church, and pretty soon you outgrow the building. So the second thing you do is you build a building, and then you have a building, and of course you got to do something in it. So the third thing you do is you get really fantastic programs. You have programs for little kids, you have programs for. A little bit older kids, you have programs for teenagers, you have programs for college and career, you have programs for young marriages without kids, you have programs for young marriages with kids, you have programs for people who want to be married, you got programs for people who don't want to be married. I mean, you're just going to have programs. And then because you have all these programs, you got to get some staff because, you know, any one guy can't do all of it. So you start to hire really good staff. That's the way that you grow an American church. That's what we're told. And as I look around, I say, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it's done. In fact, we have a joke among pastors. The joke among pastors is you always start by pastoring your people. And then pretty soon you're pastoring your staff who pastors your people. And then if you get really good, you pastor other pastors who pastor their staff who pastor people. And then you write a book. That's what we joke about. Seriously, seriously, help help me here. Set all that aside. That's not the way Elmira Baptist Church needs to grow. And I'm serious, it's my heart. Yes, we've got a pastor, and yes, we're working on a building, but the answer is not a bunch of programs, and the answer is not a bunch of staff. The answer is each one of us filled with the Holy Spirit. Doing what God asks us to do. If you've only been here a few times, and this is your first time with us, and you think this is a little bit different, it's fine. Hear my heart. We're not trying to grow a church on a pastor, or a building, or programs, or staff. We're not trying to be the most famous church in Elmira, even though that's really easy because there are only two churches here. We're trying to respond to the Holy Spirit and the power of God's grace, be the best Christian disciples we can be. Okay, you just said amen. I set you up. Because when does God get the glory? God gets the glory in times of crisis, doesn't he? And you and I, I don't like crisis. You don't like crisis. I know you don't like crisis. I don't like crisis. But God gets the glory in times of crisis. How did God get the children of Israel down into Egypt? He sent a famine. Do you like famines? I don't like famines. He left them there for 400 years and then to get them out. How did he get them out? He sent the plagues of Egypt. And if you'll read Exodus, I just was going through this myself. Some of those plagues affected the children of Israel. Not all of them. Not all of them. But some of them affected the children of Israel. I'm sure there were Israelites. In fact, the Bible tells us they were complaining. They said, Moses, you are making our lives harder. Quit telling Pharaoh to let us go and just let us be slaves. They said that. I mean, they were so bad, they finally got away from slavery. And they said, can't we just go back to slavery? At least we had food to eat. This was their mentality. How is God going to get them out of Egypt? He's going to send 10 plagues. He's going to take him through the wilderness. He's going to destroy a whole generation. Does that sound like a good plan to you? I mean, I'm just humanly speaking, that sounds like a terrible plan to me. It's times of crisis. You say, amen, we want to glorify God. Well, then we should expect that there's going to be times of crisis in our lives. There's going to be times of crisis on the personal level, just you having a crisis. There's going to be times of crisis in your family where maybe you're not having the crisis, but a spouse or a child or a parent is having a crisis. And what do we do? God take the crisis away. And God says, no, wait a minute. You said you wanted to be a committed disciple. We say, yeah, yeah, but that's not what I meant. When does God get the glory? God gets the glory in uncomfortable situations. How did God get Ruth to meet Boaz? There's only four women, by the way, that are mentioned in, in, in um, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, there are four women who are mentioned as uh, four fathers, four mothers of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And one of them is Ruth. How did God get Ruth out of Moab to meet Boaz? Well, he killed her husband. That's what he did. Right? Wasn't Ruth married to one of Naomi's sons? And what happened to Naomi's son? He died. I, 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 know, I know I don't want my spouse to die. I know my wife wouldn't be excited if I died. I hope not. <laughs> wouldn't be excited if I died. You see, that, that, that's what God did. That's what God did. And Ruth had to put up with a bitter mother-in-law to get back to Bethlehem. Now, I don't have a bitter mother-in-law, praise the Lord. But I understand they are really nasty. And, and Ruth had to put up with a bitter mother-in-law to get, to, the, get to, to meet Boaz. And you know what happens? God sends people in our lives that are irritants, that are bitter, that make our lives harder, and we say, God, take this person out of my life. And God says, no, I thought you wanted to be a committed Christian, and you wanted me to get the glory. I mean, you said amen when Pastor was preaching. You say, yeah, but not that way. (laughs) Can't we just be a famous church? Can't we get a pastor who pastors other pastors who staff their people? I mean, why do we have to go through times of discomfort? God says, because that's where I get the glory. God gets the glory taking his people through times of danger. I'm going to use another lady here. How about Esther? First thing God does is he takes both of her parents away. You, You didn't read that part of the story carefully, did you? Why is she living with Mordecai? Because her parents have died. And then the next thing that happens to her in the book of Esther, the next thing that happens to Esther in the book of Esther, is she is forcibly taken into the king's harem. Now again, we don't have kings and harems anymore, and I'm really glad. Because I know if the king came by for one of my daughters, wanted to take her into the harem, I wouldn't be very happy about that. That's that's dangerous. That's disastrous. That's bad. But just bad all the way around. But if God's going to get the glory, he's going to have to put us in dangerous spots. Was God in control when Haman came up through the ranks and and became cozy with King Ahasuerus? And Haman's suggestion was, let's just murder all these people. The king says, sure, why not? He doesn't even know who they are. You you read the text. He doesn't even know who they are. He just knows Haman wants to kill a bunch of people and offers to give him a bunch of money. Sure, go ahead. And now they're really in danger. And Mordecai comes to his cousin, Esther, and he says, listen, God's put you in the harem for such a time as this. And if I was Esther, I'd say, well, you need to talk to God because I'm not very happy. I don't want to be in this harem. I didn't ask to be in this harem. My goal in life was not to become a harem girl. That's what I would have said if I was Esther. She's in danger. She's not in a safe spot. And and Mordecai's idea is, well, just go talk to the king. No, no, stop, stop, stop. You don't just go talk to the king. If you didn't hear this story in Sunday school, I remember this detail from Sunday school. If you went into the king's presence and the king didn't hold out his scepter, it was off with your head. You didn't just bother the king. You just didn't call him like you call your representative to complain. And Esther says, if I die... I die. Not fatalistically. She understands that God puts her, God puts his people in positions of danger so that God gets the glory. So the next time you're in a dangerous spot and it's not your choice. Now, sometimes we're in a dangerous spot because we've done something stupid. Okay, granted. You can pray about that too. But I'm talking about you're in a dangerous spot and you didn't do anything wrong. You need to talk to God. He's got you there for a reason. And don't just start by saying, God, get me out of danger. Now, I don't know God's will for every person, but sometimes God wants us to stay in that dangerous spot. Let's go back to Esther. Esther gets taken from her home there with Mordecai. She's ripped away from the little bit of family she has. She's taken into the king's harem. I can imagine, I don't know, but I can imagine what Mordecai is praying for. He's praying that somehow she'll be released. Now let's go down that road a little bit. Let's imagine God says, Mordecai, I see your prayer. Go ahead. You're, you're, You're right. By the way, God's always right. I said that earlier. But let's imagine God says, you're right. I'll let Esther go from the harem. Now they're reunited. Isn't that great? No, it's terrible. Because when Haman comes up with his murderous plot to kill all the Jews, who's in the king's palace to say something? No one. You see, God had a plan in that. I've heard a pastor preach one time something like, you know, if Esther would have been godly, she would have never found herself in the harem. What? Have you read the book? God put her there for a purpose and a reason. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't easy for Esther. It wasn't the plan I would have picked if God would have come to me and said, here's the situation and this is what's coming up. And what do you think I should do? I just say, put Mordecai in the king's palace. Leave Esther alone. Whose plan is better, God's plan or my plan? The next time you find yourself in a dangerous spot, not because of anything you've done, but you find yourself in a dangerous spot, and your temptation is, God, just get me out of this danger. Just get me back to safety. Just get me back to where I want to be. Just get me back to where I'm comfortable. Get me back to my people. That reminds you, you're not in control. And God's grace is sufficient for that situation. Now, not only do we see this pattern where we have nothing and God has to intervene. That's what happened to Lazarus. That, that's what happened to us at salvation. That's what happens to us in our sanctification, which we'll talk about uh, in future weeks. God, God intervenes. It also happens in our church. We talked about that. We're not looking to become some mega church. The, the goal is not to become so big. Or The goal is for each one of us to respond to the Holy Spirit and be the committed Christian disciples he wants us to be, but it also goes on the national level. Like you, I am am distressed by the direction the United States is going. There have always been, at least as far as I can tell from history, there's always been drag queens. It's just we didn't normally expose our children to them, right? There's always been evil in our society. We just used to call it evil. And so I'm distressed by the direction that our Nation is going, but America's hope—America's hope—is not in itself. America's hope is not in democracy or 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 the republic. Uh, the The hope of the United States is not in politics. The hope of the United States is not in American exceptionalism. And many of the conservative writers that I follow—they're—they're they're hooked on that. Boy, America is an exceptional country. We can pull out of this if we just return to our roots. No, 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 no. There is no hope in America. It's not in capitalism. The hope in America is that God intervenes. And if we believe that, we ought to be praying for it. We ought to be begging God, God, if you don't intervene, our nation is sliding towards destruction. I'm not sure if God would have asked me, what era in history do you want to live in? I I don't think I would have picked this era. There's a lot of things I don't like about this era. You and I can talk about that later if you'd like. There's just, it's not just uh, the politics of it, although that bothers me. Just technology bothers me, and a lot of things bother me. But you know what God said? I've got a plan, and I need a Scott right here. And God says, I've got a plan. I need you right here, right today. If you don't know this or not, you are in California. (laughs) I don't know why you're laughing. We live on the left coast. I was talking with a pastor this week who said he he asked a young man to come join his staff at his church. And the young man's father-in-law said, my daughter is not going to California. Do you know what those people are like? So the pastor called him. He said, I'm a Californian. Nope. My daughter's not going to California. They think we're weird. But I can tell you, God wants us in California. Now, if God calls you somewhere else, you go where God calls you. But I'm glad that I'm right here on the front lines in California. You, you realize, don't you, that what happens in California doesn't stay in California. <laughs> it doesn't. A lot of people think, well, I'll just move out of California. I'll go to Idaho. And I, What happens? All the Californians go to Idaho. This, by the way, I lived through this in Oregon. Back in the 70s, we had very different politics in Oregon. And then all the Californians decided to move to Oregon. They ruined that state. Let's just just fix it here. If we believe that God is all powerful, and I do, then God is powerful enough to intervene in California. There's a group of us, we we were challenged to pray that God would send revival to Northern California to show his power. Everyone's expecting if, if a revival breaks out, we won't be surprised if it breaks out in the Bible Belt. We'll be surprised if it breaks out in San Francisco. I'm praying for San Francisco, because I believe in a God that's powerful enough to bring people back from the dead. He's powerful enough to to stop a nation's slide into destruction. He's powerful enough to solve your problem, not the way you want him to, not by taking you out of danger, not by putting you back in a comfortable spot, not by ending the crisis by making the crisis worse. But He's in control. And he's going to get the glory. If you'll just respond in the Holy Spirit to whatever he sends your way. And again, we cast all our cares upon him because he truly does care for us. Do you believe that God is a savior powerful enough to save people from sin? Do you believe that God is powerful enough to take a a little church of a few dozen people and use them mightily because God is God and not because we are who we are? Do you believe that God can take our state Do you you believe God can take this stretch of I-80 between Sacramento and San Francisco and turn it into something unexpected for His glory?